Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Well, it is good to see everyone this morning. I didn't, uh, you know, as a church planter, uh, and and being a new church, there are a couple dates on the calendar that you always look at with fear and trepidation uh, for your Sunday morning gatherings. Uh, one of those is January 1st, because you're like, it's going to be me and my kids uh, there. Uh, another one is uh, Labor Day weekend, <laughs> Memorial Day, and the time change. <laughs> Specifically, this time change. Because I am convinced this time change is evidence that the world is broken. And, and I don't know if you're here struggling with the fact of whether there's a God or whether the world's broken by sin. But if today and this God-forsaken time change does not convince you, uh, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, <laughs> But it is, uh, it is really good to see all of you, and uh, this morning we're going to continue our journey through the book of Genesis. And what we've been doing is the reason why we want to go through the book of Genesis, well, is number one, we just want to be a church that preaches the Word of God. We're not here to give you our opinions, and, and I'll even be honest, like we don't even necessarily want to feel the pressure that we got to come up with all these self-help type sermons. Darren and I aren't that smart. Um, so I don't have like every week Darren and I are like, here's the nine tips to live a healthy lifestyle. You know, uh, there are other sources for that. What we believe is that God's word is the foundation of truth for all of life, that God has already given us what we need to know and what we need to hear. And our desire is just to go, here's what God said. How do we begin to bend our lives to it? This is one of the reasons why we value truth as one of our four core values here. So uh, we haven't talked about this in a while, but, but we have four core values, God, truth, love, and mission. So these are the lens that kind of create the framework for how we want to go about living that mission statement of glorifying God, equipping his people, and reaching people. As we think about how we do that, we want to be guided by loving God above all things and valuing Him above all things first because we believe that since He's the maker of heaven and earth, He should probably be our priority. <laughs> that we should be directing our lives, that in all things He is preeminent. And so fundamentally speaking, the question that we ask that drives this church, and I pray drives your life, my life, and family, is this. What does God want? That's a question that you think if we know who God is would be a no-brainer. But i got to be honest, as, as I live my life and, and as I've been around churches, that, that's really kind of the last question we ask because ultimately it's, what do I want? What do my kids want? What do other people want? What does my heart want? What does, and all of these things, while not necessarily bad questions, we just want to put forward, that's probably not the starting question. The starting question should be, what is it that God wants? What does He want done in the world? What does He want done? Well, what does that mean for His people? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my life? And then secondly, we believe this God has spoken to us. 
we believe that this God has spoken to us first and foremost, or one, one way, in creation. That we look out at creation and we see the fingerprints of a designer. That just as we look at a book, I love one of my favorite uh, Christian like defenders of the faith is a guy named John Lennox. If you want to know a smart man, listen to John Lennox. I think the guy has like six degrees. I think he has two masters and two PhDs, I think. He teaches it at Oxford or Cambridge. He is a brilliant, brilliant man. One of his PhDs is in mathematics. And he goes and he, he defends the faith and he debates like the, you know, the Richard Dawkinses of the world and the Christopher Hitchenses of the world. And he'll give reasons why the, 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 the scriptures are true and why he believes. And he'll talk about that just as we look at a book and we see words and sentences and paragraphs and we go, we know that an author wrote, wrote a book, that, that it just didn't randomly come together. That in the similar way, when we look at creation, more specifically, like, just take one thing, DNA. Like, evolution does not have a reason for why DNA exists, right? We look at that and go, okay, here's information, here's order, here's systems, here's things working together perfectly, like dials, putting it all together. We see, oh, there's a creator behind that, right? But then also we believe that God has specifically revealed himself to us in his word and in the living word, Jesus Christ. That God has not only generally revealed himself in creation, but he has specifically revealed himself through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. That we don't just have to know things that there might be a God somewhere. No, we know his name. We know his heart. We know what he desires of life, what he desires of us, that he has answered the question, what does he want, right? There are some elements of religion that make it all this mystical mystery journey that you have to somehow unlock the right keys in the right order, do the right things in the right time, and maybe you'll unlock it and know the mystery. That's actually not how the scriptures reveal themselves. I love that song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, because God has said, I've revealed the mystery to you. I'm revealing the truth to you. I'm not hiding behind a tree, hoping that you'll find me, and then kind of whistle, and then when you look, I'm going to run to another tree, and then whistle again. No, God has clearly revealed himself, and that's why we want to be a, a church that doesn't interpret life through our experience and then try to craft our truth. Instead, we want to look at the truth and then craft how we see the world and our experiences. Does that make sense? Like, our world inverts that. Our world culture says, no, truth is found in you. Based on your experience, then you'll know the truth. That's the exact opposite of what God has revealed to us. And so this is why we want to teach the Scriptures Number two, we want to walk through Genesis because there's a lot going on, and it's really been going on since the fall of man, but yet specifically in our culture, there are some things going on that are seeking really hard to unravel what God has revealed to us about who we are, how things came to be, what the center of truth is, what is a person, how do we find our identity, what, is, what does it mean to be a person, and how are we to live, who's ultimately res to, responsible for everything, who are we accountable to, 
right? These are all things that Genesis begins to lay a foundation for that not only interprets how we see the rest of the scriptures, but also how we see life. And if we, and, and so we want to look at the foundations that God has given to us, these powerful truths that God is a creator and what that means for us. That means that, that he made all things, he owns all things, including me. I and you are owned. That doesn't sound good to our American ears, does it? That you're owned. But here's the deal. None of us created ourselves. None of us created anything necessarily. And so that don't take that as you're owned by this domineering, hateful man. It's a God who loves you, who designed you for a purpose, and who's like, I've got amazing things in store. Just follow me. Look, I promise you, I know how life works. You ever felt that way as a parent before? You're looking at your, at your young kids and you're like, I promise you, I don't have your harm in mind. I promise you that I'm trying to, I, I know the path you're walking down. I've even like, you know, this isn't God. Like I've been, I've done those things. You don't need to go there. Like that's the heart of the father. I know what the path of death looks like and leads to. I want to lead you to life because I am the God of life, right? And so this is why we've been walking through Genesis. And so you look at Genesis 1 that we finished a couple of weeks ago, and we looked at these massive themes that we learned that God is a creator, that we looked at that, God's, that God created through his word, and that, that we learn some things about his word, that his word is authoritative. It's not just a good suggestion. That his word is, is, the, uh, 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 it is good. It is life-giving. And then we see as we fast forward to the, to the New Testament, we see, okay, well, God created all things, and he created all things through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the living word. So the Father creates through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is all to the glory of our triune God. We learn that God, through his word, ordered all things. He didn't just make them randomly. He orders it for a purpose and creates things in their proper place so that they work in ways that they're supposed to work for his glory and the good of his creation. In the last several weeks, we've been looking at the idea of the image of God in man, that we are made in his image. And a part of being made in his image, uh, uh, it gives us tremendous dignity, tremendous value, and that in his image we are embodied spirits, that God gave us souls that could never die, but he also gave us bodies. And he didn't make a mistake when he made male and female. He didn't make a mistake when he made you male and female, that, that, that our bodies are a critical part of being made in his image. And in a world today that says that our true self is our heart, and if our feeling doesn't match the outside, then, then we are the creators of ourselves that can change that. That's actually not a gospel perspective. That God says, no, I've made your body, and I made it good. I made it for a purpose I put the soul in you, in that body, for a purpose, and it's good. Don't fight against it. And then last week, we talked about rest. 
that God is a God who made all things and he saw that it was all very good and that he sat and he rested from his works. That I don't need to add to what I've made. That doesn't mean that God isn't working anymore, but that he is complete in the work of creation. And that we were also created for rest. Boy, that's a word that I think more than anything, this uh, moving from the more urban culture to the more rural culture, we're a hardworking people. And I gotta be honest, it's refreshing and it's, and it's awesome. But at the same time, we are a hardworking people that don't really know how to rest. <laughs> Sorry, it's even hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> right? We've always got to feel we've got to be doing something instead of realizing that, no, God created us to rest because why? A, our bodies are not eternally sufficient. We don't have, God, God never sleeps. God never grows weary. We need to sleep and we grow weary. Number two, we are not God. If we are workaholics, here's ultimately what the posture is, whether we intend to or not. This all rises and falls on me. Not you, God. It all rises and falls on me. So I can't take a rest because if I rest, the whole world's going to fall apart. Rather than remembering, no, what does Colossians 1 say? That in Christ, He holds all things together. What does Hebrews chapter 1 say? That in Christ, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is not mine. I can't even get a room full of toddlers to listen to me. How do I think that my word is actually going to be able to accomplish anything? Right? But yet, so we are called to rest. But now as we look forward from that, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. And these are an important set of scriptures, and I find it fascinating that in many ways, on the heels of God creating everything, on the heels of God revealing these powerful truths, and then concluding that this kind of first section with God resting, now we're going to look at our purpose and an element of our work. Isn't that interesting that we're going to look at that? So let's read Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 to 17. This is the word of God. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, 
It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where, the, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the river Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now there are some that will view Genesis chapter 2 put next to Genesis chapter 1 as two creation accounts. That there's, that there's the first story, and then there's the second story. And, and at some element, they look very different from one another. But actually, we've got to remember, this is one creation account. You've also got to remember that when we read chapters and verses, that was actually not in the original text. So the chapters and verses that you have in your Bible, they were put in, if my memory's right, about the late 1400s, early 1500s. So, so when the chapters and so, so when this was originally written, this was one account. So we need to read chapter two, not as a separate creation story, but in light of Genesis chapter one, and it's telling the whole story. And so what we see in Genesis chapter two, I'm going to throw a word out here for you. It's not a common word, but it's a, it's a good word, is what's called an excursus. Anybody know what an excursus is? An excursus is a detailed look at a point made somewhere else, specifically in a book. So if a book makes a point and then, you know, teaches something and then it goes into an excursus, it says, I'm going to give you some more detail about that point. So what's happening here is we're going to get a, a de more detailed look at something that is taught in Genesis chapter 1. So we keep the foundation of Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to zoom in a little clearer. And one of the hints that tells us that this section is in light of Genesis 1 is verse 4, which is kind of a, a, a summary statement as it's transitioning to this excursus that connects the two sections together. So look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Notice the parallelism in there. It's kind of saying the same thing. Another way to say it is this is what's called a chiasm. So it, the, the central point is that God made it, and he made the heavens and the earth, and the heavens and the earth are on the other side, right? Like, so he's saying, remember, God made it all. God made it all, just like I told you. So now let's dive into what's going on. But also notice there is a change into how God is referenced in this. This is a significant change. Notice the words, Lord God. If you look all throughout Genesis chapter 1, it says God. Now we're switching to Lord God. This is an important shift. This term, Lord God, whenever you see Lord in all capital letters in your Bible, you'll, you'll see this throughout the whole Old Testament. You're smiling. You know what I'm going to say, don't you, Cindy? I like it. So you'll read this in the Psalms. You'll read this throughout the Old Testament. This is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. If you see Lord and it's not all capital letters, that is the term Adonai. 
So these are very different. So Yahweh is the Lord's personal covenantal name that he gives to his people. That's it. So, so in the Genesis chapter 1, this word here is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is God. So it makes sense if you read through Genesis chapter 1 and you get this giant picture of the God of the universe speaking and creating all things. That he is the author of life, he is the brilliant creator, he is the one that orders it all, he is not in his creation, he is above his creation, he speaks light and it's created. He says, I want there to be a difference between the earth and the heavens, it happens. He's like, I want to separate the land from the seas, and it happens. I want to create life, I want to create animals, I want to create fish, and now, now the Lord God is going to create humanity. That is Elohim, the one true God. But now we switch, and we're going to spend time in a garden. And we're going to see how this Elohim, the God of the heavens, now interacts with his people in his place. And he specifically begins to reveal his heart, reveal himself, reveal this is who I am. This is why I've made you. This is what I've provided for you. I am your, per I'm not just your God, I am your personal God. That's Yahweh. Interestingly enough, we'll get into this when we do Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent begins to tempt Eve, all of a sudden it switches back to God. Because what we learn is that God, or that Satan knows God as Eliohim. He does not know him as Yahweh. And isn't it interesting, you'll see that even Eve only refers to God as Elohim and not Yahweh. Nineteen times in Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3, Yahweh Elohim is used because this is about a personal God who is invested in his creation, who is invested with his people, that we were made for him, to relate to him, to live in light of him, and to live for his glory. This is a special title for God. And so we see that not only did, did Elohim, the God of all creation, who is above it, who is over it, who is, the, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, I want you to know me. And so what we see as we look into this is that what we see is the powerful presence of Yahweh Elohim in the midst of his creation walking with his people. We're going to see in a minute, providing for his people, commanding his people the path of life, giving them all that they need, and setting them up in his world to flourish. Oh, don't lose sight of the powerful presence of Yahweh Elohim. If you are here in Christ, this is akin to what Romans chapter 8 says, that we get to come before this Elohim, this God of the universe that is the unquenchable fire that is never changing, never sleeps, never grows weary, speaks and it happens, the ultimate judge that quakes and shakes the foundations of the earth, that in Jesus you get to come to him and call him daddy. That's what Abba Father means, daddy. 
Yes, I know you're God. Yes, I know you're the Lord of heaven and earth, but you're my dad. So we see that the powerful presence of the Lord God is in the midst of his creation. And then what we see is that very quickly, uh, it's interesting, we get to verse 5, and it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. You might be asking, that seems to me a little bit different than what I read on the third day in Genesis 1 where God says, I'm going to make vegetation and then boom, all this vegetation and all these seed-bearing plants come up and now all of a sudden you're telling me there's nothing? How do those two things fit together? Well, here's what we see. What's interesting is, is in verses 5 and 6, as we're describing what the new earth, formed earth, is looking like, we don't necessarily get a picture of all that's there, but we get a picture of what's not there. Because this is a hint at there's a fall coming. So there are different phrases and words used for plant and shrub that mirror what is told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, where because of the fall, God says, by thorns and thistles, by the sweat of your brow, you'll work the land. And so what we see is, uh, verse 5 is saying, all of these uh, uh, food-bearing plants, all of the, so, so there's common vegetation going on, but this unique kind of food-bearing sustenance type things, they're not quite, the, the fall hasn't happened yet. Man is not here to work and cultivate these types of plants yet. So it doesn't mean that that, that verse that chapter 1 is wrong, it's giving us a picture that A, God is preparing the earth for man to come and cultivate the earth, and number two, there's a fall coming. That's why it says, you know, and then what we see is that God has, has, has waited, you know, kind of waiting for man to come and work the ground, is waiting, you know, and, and he's provided these springs of water that are, that, that, that are waiting for these shrubs and plants to be done, and then we go right into the next verse in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So we see that this Lord God, this all-powerful God, makes man. And now we see that the decree of God in chapter 1, let us make man in our image, now we see it being, being made more clear by the work of God that this Lord God comes down into creation and using the image of a potter with clay forms man out of the dust of the ground. That's that word makes it, it in, in, that chat, or in that verse. It's this idea of a potter with clay. That God is down and he takes some of the dust of the earth that he made, which shows us, and, and it's interesting, when it says he caused, he made us from the dust and that we're, made us a living creature, here's what's interesting. The same type of imagery is used for the animals, that we're made of similar substance. So on one hand, chapter 1 says we are image bearers of God. It is royal language. We, we are here to be his representatives. That it's not just the kings of the world and the elite of the world that are the image of God. No, it's every person is an image bearer. But we're dust. That we are creatures. And that we are made from the earth. But yet something amazing happens that happens to nothing else in all creation. God breathes the breath of life into us. 
Now, normally, the word for breath is ruach, but a different Hebrew word that I cannot pronounce for you is used for breath here because what God uniquely does with humanity when he forms us from the dust is he uniquely breathes the breath of life into us does not do this with anything else. And so what that means is that, that, that we have a unique life in us that nothing else has. That we are, yes, made of the earth. That we are made of the dust. But we are his image bearers with a unique life in us directly given by God himself. And because he is called Lord God, the first thing we learn about life is that we were made firstly for him. The Lord God, the Yahweh God, I made you to know me, to live in light of me. I'm here to walk with you, to be your God, to be your father, to, 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 to not have a, have a relationship of, of, of enmity and anger and bitterness, but one of closeness and intimacy where I provide for you. You find security in me. I made you for me. And that means I will provide, I will guard, I will give you life. And then we see that this Lord God not only makes man this way, but then we also see that God's a gardener. Like when I go to see your garden, Karen, I'm amazed, right? How clean and beautiful and precise and, and, and how purposeful it is. Well, we get the same idea here. God plants a garden. Look what it says in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground... The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God creates man, breathes the breath of life into him, and then plants this beautiful garden filled with every fruit-bearing tree. It doesn't mean that every tree in the world is there, but the language is every beautiful fruit-bearing tree is there for provision. God says, I'm going to give you a beautiful place. I'm going to give you a place that's going to provide for you because what we see, the Lord God provides all that is needed for mankind to flourish. He gives us himself. He gives us beauty. Look what it says. Every tree that, uh, that is pleasant to the sight. Have you ever been awestruck by nature before? This is kind of the picture that is being given here. God gives food so that we could continue to go. Isn't it awesome to know that we were made to eat? That means we're going to eat in heaven. That's going to be, can you imagine what the spaghetti is going to be like in heaven? I mean, forget about it. Your pizza's good, Andrew. It ain't going to be that good. I'm telling you. He also gave us the ability to multiply. Remember what it says in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. So he put us in the garden to multiply so that more image bearers would fill the garden that would fill the earth. He gave us a life connection. This is, now, don't miss this. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did God put these there? Is there something magical about these trees? No. This is why it's important. We can't miss the language that's used here. And it says, Verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is God who put these trees there. 
There's nothing magical about the tree of life, but what the tree of life symbolizes is that in the presence of God, there is perpetual life. And that when we are with God, when we are in his presence, he is not a God of death. He is not a God of decay. He is a God of life. And when we are with him, we may eat of that tree of life because it is his presence that gives life. It is his presence that gives the sustaining perpetualness of life life. It's not about the fruit. It's about the God who gave the fruit, which is why when you fast forward to Revelation 22, we see that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be the tree of life that yields its fruit every month because there will be no death in heaven because that's how God created life to be. But then we also see that there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is that tree there? It's like I remember with my kids when they were like three years old or maybe like six or seven, I challenged my kids one day. We were in New York and I said, you know what, guys? I have given you this whole house. You can play anywhere you want. The whole house, 99.9% of this house is yours. You just can't touch the front door. As a matter of fact, you just can't touch the front door knob. That's it. The rest of the house is yours. And then I sat back and watched. Do you know what those kids did? They didn't leave the two-foot radius of the front door. And they're looking at each other. Why can't I touch the door? What is it about that doorknob? What am I doing? Why? How many? A minute and a half. They touched the doorknob. I'm like, you're a sinner! <laughs> I knew it! <laughs> I knew it! Repent! <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, I told you you could play in the whole house, but now all of a sudden the doorknob is the most interesting thing in the house, right? Now, I was testing them because I'm not a good father. Why, why, did, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good? Was God testing us? No, the scriptures actually tell us in James that God doesn't test anyone, or he doesn't tempt anyone. But what he was doing is putting a very important reminder in the garden. Adam and Eve... We'll see her next week. You were made in my image. I've given you dominion over all the earth to subdue it. You are the pinnacle of my creation, but you're not God. You are not autonomous. You are not morally autonomous. You can't really even decide what's right and wrong. You need me for that because I am inherently good. I am inherently wise. That tree symbolizes you're not autonomous. I'm God, you're not. If God had not put that in there, he would be telling us, you are equal with me, and we're not. But then we see that, that there's these rivers, and what does that mean? The short verse idea of that is these rivers going all from Eden all throughout the earth symbolizes God's glory covering the earth, God's abundance, God's richness, God's beauty, God's wealth extending throughout all of the earth because here's what Eden is. Eden is a proto-temple. If you think about the tabernacle being built in Exodus, when you think about the temple that David built, that was the temple and tabernacle where God's presence dwelled with his people. It is the center of worship, and it is the center of serving God. That's what Eden is. It is man dwelling with God's presence in a perfect world. 
It's a pre-temple that mankind was called to live with, to be the center of worship, and that we would serve Him in this place. And so coupled with that, we see in Genesis 1 that man was, was called to extend Eden throughout the earth, to fill it with image bearers, to fill it with worshipers, to take this garden, because not the whole earth was Eden. Eden was a place that was to be expanded because we were called to multiply, subdue, and have dominion. And so what is God then in this first kind of temple garden say to Adam and then Eve? I want you to work and keep the garden. I've put you here to know me and to work and keep this garden. What does work mean? Work means I want you to serve me here. I want you to worship me here. I want you to cultivate this for my glory. I want you to, to carve irrigation paths, and I want you to, to work to expand Eden so that my glory with my people, my presence would be throughout the whole earth. Work it, serve it, worship, cultivate it, and I want you to keep it, which means I want you to guard it. I want you to protect it. I want you to nurture it. I want you to care for it. That's why you're here, Adam. This is very similar language to what priests were called to do in the temple. Protect it. Guard it. Serve me here. And Adam and Eve as image bearers represent God throughout the earth and are created to do His good work throughout it, serving God's purposes, protecting, guarding, and carving it all as they were fruitful and multiply. And then God gives a promise. You can eat of every tree I've given you including the tree of life, but just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't try to live apart from me. Don't try to live as if you think you're God. Don't live as if you think you're the judge of what's right and wrong and what's good and what's bad. No, stay connected with me. This is a reminder you're not God, and this is a reminder that there's a danger that you need to protect the garden from. And what we know is that Adam did not protect the garden. We're going to get into this in a couple of weeks, but Adam did not protect the garden. And he and Eve wanted to be God. They thought God was holding something good back from them. They thought that they could live a life apart from him and that they could actually sit in either an equal seat or in the seat of God. And God says, if you do that, it will bring death to you. It will bring the judgment of death on you if you do this because I will not share my glory with another. And so God holds before Adam and Eve in the garden life and death. And Adam chose death. This is why Romans 5 says that through Adam, the first Adam, death came to all. But it also is a reason why Jesus is called the second Adam. We just sang about it. The second Adam because Jesus comes and, and begins to right every wrong that Adam did. He did not rebel. He did work and keep. He did worship God and live dependent on his Father. And he did lay his life down so that our rebellion could be paid for and that our image could be restored back to what God originally intended, 
relationship with him, a renewed purpose to be about the things that he desires, and that we could take the garden of our lives and work and keep it. This is why it's so important that we understand that it is only in Christ, the second Adam, are we able to be delivered from our sentence of death and judgment. It is in Him that we find our rightful place. And it is for Him that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works in the world. That we take our families and we serve them and protect them. That we take our congregations and we serve them and protect them. That we guard it so that we make sure that we don't continually eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we constantly feast on the tree of life. Because Jesus died on a tree. The tree of good and evil brought condemnation and suffering, and Jesus went to his own tree and bore the weight and the consequence that our sin deserved. One tree brought us death. One tree restores us back to life. And so I pray that we see ourselves, that even though all was lost, it is restored in Christ, and that God has given us all a tremendous purpose where this God that, has, that we were alienated from actually restores us back to himself, restores our purpose, restores us to a great hope where one day we will be in the new heavens and the new earth, being God's people in God's place under his loving protection. Oh, I pray you find life in Christ and that all of your work flows out of that purpose. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. And God, I thank you for that you are the God who has given us yourself. I pray that you are, I thank you that you are the God who provides. You provided the breath in our lungs. You provided a savior. You provided all that we have. I thank you that you give us purpose, that we don't have to live life in this world rudderless. I pray that you give us promise that you will redeem all that was lost in your Son. And I pray that every person in this room would find all of their hope, all of their joy, and all of their life in the author of life, Jesus Christ. And that everything we do from that point would be to guard, serve, protect, and nurture our own lives, our own families, and the world around us for your glory extending righteousness throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.